0: Our reading this afternoon is from the letter to the Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 to chapter 6 verse 20 and I encourage you to follow on the screens at the front or the news sheet or your phones or other digital devices. We have much to say about this but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain are often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Thanks be to God.
1: Good afternoon everybody, uh, my name's John, I have the great privilege of being the vicar here at St Jude's uh, and we have uh, in front of us this afternoon one of the more challenging passages of scripture uh, and also quite long and I also want to flag that uh, the time allotted to me uh, will not be sufficient to cover everything uh, but I'm really, really happy to have further conversations. Um, particularly going to focus on the more serious uh, warning part of this text. There's a whole other section kind of towards the end about the great hope you have in Christ as an anchor. Uh, there's just not time to do with that. It's a whole other sermon and I'm very willing to preach two sermons, but Uni Church gets in the way of those things, so um, blame Sam for that. Uh, but just to highlight that, just so if, if your favourite bit is missed, it's, it's not intentional there for that reason. Um, I think particularly this passage is challenging for at least three reasons. Uh, the first one is just the seriousness of the warning in these verses, that it's, in, that it's impossible for someone who has fallen away to be brought back to repentance. There's a deep weight with that warning that, that just by itself is quite confronting. And by the way, that's, one of the, uh, that's the third in five warnings that we have uh, in the letter to the Hebrews, and so it's not unique, but is particularly uh, serious. I think secondly, it's a challenge because it may indeed, it does, raise theological questions on how we integrate this part of Scripture with other teachings in Scripture, particularly around issues of divine sovereignty, and human responsibility, the the doctrine of election and free will, you might have these kind of questions running around your head. Once again, totally understandable, which makes this passage complicated. And thirdly, I think almost most importantly, is that this is a deeply pastoral issue. Uh, If you're like me, I have close family and close friends who had previously declared faith in the Lord Jesus... They might be similar. You may have people that that you've prayed with, that you've come to church with, that you've led Bible studies with, that you've enjoyed Christian life together, maybe even for some time, but they are no longer a professing Christian. And that can cause deep heartache and pain. And these verses highlight that pain. And so we need to to understand this is complicated because it's pastoral. It's not just theoretical. It involves people we love. So as we look at this part of God's Word together, we need to approach it with humility. To be willing to say, what does the author of the Hebrews, what's he he trying to teach us here? Not what, what would we like to hear or what wouldn't we like to hear, but graciously, And humbly say, what is God's Word teaching us? And do that gently with each other. Well, the letter to the Hebrews, as as we've mentioned regularly, was written as an encouragement to its hearers, who despite challenges and persecutions, are encouraged to keep looking to Jesus. He is better, hence the very, very brief uh, subtitle of our series, that's the tweet, above all things. And that was the encouragement that he wants to give. And and what he does as he goes through his letter, he does two things. He wants to offer comfort to those who are anxious and challenged. We actually see that in the second half of this, this reading. But at the same time, he wants to challenge those who are complacent. And so we have both comfort and challenge in this letter and even in our reading this evening. Uh, and beginning at 5.11, what we see is a particular uh, challenge to those who are spiritually complacent. This is, this is kind of who he's targeting it at. Look at verse 11, it says, we have much to say about this. Now this is referring back to the, the previous section where he's been talking about Jesus as a high priest and he'll come back to this in chapter 7. He's kind of just reminding them. He says, but it is hard to make it clear to you. Why? Because you no longer try to understand. Uh, What it literally says is, you have become lazy in understanding or lazy in your hearing. They're not stupid. If they haven't got it, no, no, they've become lazy. Uh, The word there is where we get the word slug from, the word sluggard. They've become like spiritual slugs. And by the way, it's the same word in chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, we do not want you to become lazy. Same word again. And there are three kind of points I want to highlight as we go through, particularly uh, from 5.11 to 6.12. He highlights that, that's, that lazy Christians do not grow spiritually. That's 5.11 to 6.3. Then he says, lazy Christians are actually in serious spiritual danger. That's 4 to 8 of chapter 6. And then he says, so therefore, be diligent and keep looking to Jesus. Keep your hope in Jesus. That's 6, uh, 9 and following, and we will have some time to unpack that, but there's once again more than we have time for this afternoon. So let's look at those uh, one after the other. Firstly, lazy Christians do not grow spiritually. And he's very clear, they're not, not as if they're not even not growing, they're actually going backwards, they're regressing. He calls them babies. Now, it's, that's not meant to be a term of endearment, hey, babes, what's up? No, it's, uh, you know, babies, I think, are cute and cuddly and nice. It's a, it's a put-down. These are grown women and men behaving like toddlers. It's a put-down. In fact, in verse 12, he says, uh, by this time, some of you ought to be teachers. And we have some teachers in, in our congregation. You, you don't put three-year-olds in charge of a classroom, of year nines, Right? How would that work, Maddie? It would be a disaster, right? Yeah. Yes, just agree with me. It's the safest option, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need someone to teach you the elemental truths of God's word over again. You need milk, not food. He's, he's drawing a, a pretty harsh contrast with these, these people. Your are spiritual babies. You, you were growing, but now you're going backwards. So grow up. Grow up. And in verse 14, he gives us a picture of what growing up looks like. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That's the antidote to their their kind of spiritual baby-like behaviour. And the three things, notice he says there, to grow as a Christian, you need to have consistency. By constant use. There's, There's a discipline a regularity to to their practices that help them grow. There's a little phrase, practice doesn't make, well practice makes perfect, actually a better phrase is really practice makes permanent. Whatever you do regularly will become your habit, be it good or be it bad. So not doing something is a habit by the way, not doing something is a habit just as much as doing something is a habit. I've got a very good habit of not going for a run every morning. It's really hard to break good habits, you know. But but what about spiritually? You are in a habit for your spirituality now. It's not as if you say, I haven't got a a spirit." No, you're in one. The question is, is it a healthy habit or an unhealthy habit? Because practice makes permanent. Notice too, there's the element of intentionality here. They have trained themselves. There's a focus on, on what things will help them grow spiritually. If you're training to be the world's best netball player, swimming laps in the pool, probably not the best thing. In other words, there's an intentionality as well as a regularity. What do you need to work on to grow spiritually? Have you thought about that and focused on that? And the result? Well, the result is that they get to distinguish good from evil. In other words, spiritual maturity has an end beyond just feeling closer to God, which I think you absolutely do. It works itself out. There's a practical outcome. You feel closer to God, which means you turn away from sin and you think deeply about how you can turn to God, love Him and love your neighbour. Distinguish between good and evil. There's a practical outworking of maturing. And so mature Christians haven't just got the kind of head knowledge right. You see it expressed in their actions. They're the ones who are serving. They're the ones who are praying. They're the ones who are caring for others. They're the ones who are proclaiming the gospel. They're the ones who are standing up for what is right. And so the author of the Hebrews is saying, look, what is your plan? Because you have a habit. Don't be a lazy, sluggard Christian. Well, secondly, he moves into a more serious danger in verses 4 to 8. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God's Word and the power of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. That is a confronting part of Scripture. In other words, here are some people who seem to have all of the blessings of a Christian life, if it wasn't for verse 6, these are the kind of people that would be nice to have in your small group, right? What does he mean then, that it's impossible for them, if they've fallen away, to be brought back to repentance? Well, that little phrase, uh, fallen away, is obviously really, really key. It literally means to fall aside, to go astray. Uh, Interestingly, uh, it's the same root the, the verb is the same root as in Luke ten eighteen, where Satan falls from heaven like lightning, as Jesus says. Now we need to be careful we don't read too much into that, because other times the word "fall" is literally used for something where gravity affects something. so but, but it's worth noticing that the word "fall is also in not just gravity, but also talks about spiritual falling as well. It's not, it, it kind of works in both. Um, let me say then four things that are important to note with this little phrase, with this warning. Uh, Firstly, this warning in Hebrews about falling away is not unique. What I mean by that, throughout Scripture we have warnings to God's people about falling away. Through Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, One example I found during the week, a very interesting example is from Ezekiel chapter 18 verses 21 to 32. What is interesting is the words used in Hebrews 6 uh, echoes in some ways, some simile, to to Ezekiel uh, chapter 18. Let me just give you a very brief section from this, from verse 23. It says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, and does detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of, literally what it says is, because of their falling away, and because of their sins they have committed, they will die. It's a very serious warning in Ezekiel 18. And he also says later on, God is not unjust which is what the author to the Hebrews says as well. Uh, in Mark 4, Jesus, in his very famous parable about the sower and the seed, the sower casts seed on different soils, we have two particular soils. There's the soil that, that, that is shallow, and there's initial life, and it, things look good, but there are no roots, so the plant dies. Or there's a third type of soil, where initially there's growth and things are going well, but then the weeds choke, and the plant dies. Both show initial growth, both fail. Uh, Jesus' own words in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, even if we were to wish this part of Scripture, Hebrews 6, was not in the Scriptures, we still have to confront these warnings. It's not a one-off. God's Word has a very th- serious thing to say about this. Secondly, uh, this warning it is about something more than just sinning, when I say the word just sinning, please understand what I'm saying, or even potentially denying Christ. It is more than that. Uh, We are told in 1 John 1.8, a verse we often come to when we confess our sins as a church, that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. In other words, all of us wrestle with sin. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Christians sin and Christians receive forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it must be something more than that. The other thing that's very interesting is in all four Gospels, we read of Peter's denial of Christ. Out loud, in front of other people, not once, not twice, but three times. Like that, pretty bad, right? Uh, he also, he, he, in Matthew uh, 26, uh, he says, He, that is, that is Peter, began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I do not know this man. It's, it's not a kind of vague, oh, I've never heard of Jesus. No. He, he's making a stand that he does not know Christ. I deny him serious, serious uh, event. But yet what happens as we read the Gospels? Beautifully, Peter is restored. And there's a little threefold thing happening there just to make it, just to complete it out. It's, it's a wonderful moment of restoration. Now why is it important that, that we kind of think about this? I think it's important because you may have a fear that perhaps you are, are are someone who is impossible to forgive. There are things in your past that you are deeply ashamed of. There are burdens of guilt that you carry and you think, there is no chance for me. My sin is too great. Brother and sister, can I say to you, take comfort. Take comfort. A deep awareness of your own sinfulness and guilt and a deep awareness of your own desperate need for forgiveness is a sign that God's Spirit is at work in you. See, someone who repents and wants a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're not in the situation that these verses speak of. They are as far away from these verses as is possible to be. If you are someone who, who, who has come in true faith and repentance, no, no for sure, you will always be welcomed back. That's the story of the prodigal son a young man who says to his father, basically you're dead to me, can I have your inheritance now? He's not just kind of a young person wanting money from mum and dad. No, he's saying, I actually want, you're dead to me. He goes and works with pigs, which uh, in the ancient world is equivalent to someone from Sydney, like really disgusting and dirty. Comes home, best chance slave, right? His father sees him and what does his father do? As he waits patiently till he comes and says, you've been a very naughty boy, but I guess you can come in. He runs. He sees him and he runs, which great men in Jesus' time did not do. No couch to 5K if you're a man of dignity. That was other people's work. No app telling you, as Bridget's app did, you can do it. No, the app would say, don't run. But yet that's God's attitude to us. Well, thirdly, we still must take this warning very seriously. Uh, What I believe the author of the Hebrews has in mind when he speaks of falling away is nothing less than a conscious, deliberate and persistent abandonment of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. It involves nothing less than apostasy from the living God. God has indeed promised to forgive all who repent, but Scripture and experience alike warn us that it is possible for us human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life which is so hardened to God and His Spirit that we can no longer repent. By the way, Jesus Himself says something very, very similar in Luke 12.10. He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He might have wrestled with that verse as well. What's he talking about here? Uh, You'll notice too that in this Hebrews passage, he highlights the Holy Spirit in verse 4. I think think intentionally. And I think there's, there's a theological overlap here. Why is it unforgivable? Well, I think... The reason it's unforgivable in Jesus' words and the reason people can fall away in the words of Hebrews is for the same reason, is because of the role of the Holy Spirit. He plays a unique and decisive role in our salvation. See, part of the Spirit's work is to open our eyes and convict us of sin to bring us to repentance and unite us with Christ, that we may be forgiven. That's the Spirit's work. And when we sin, there is still hope. The Spirit can still do its work in us, it can convict us of sin, it can humble us, and it can bring us to the cross once more. That's the Spirit's work in the life of a believer. But if we see and taste the power of the Holy Spirit, if we see the beauty and goodness of God's Word and the self-saving work of Christ, and we reject that as completely and utterly worthless garbage, we have complete disdain for it, The danger is we are shutting ourselves off from the only one who can bring us to repentance. And so falling away and in the same kind of vein, the uh, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit are similar in that they are an act of resistance which so belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that it withdraws from us forever its convicting power and therefore we are never able to repent or be forgiven. As 6.6 six, uh, six, six puts it, it is if they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. What he's saying is, you stop seeing the cross as a beautiful and, and weighty gift of, of, of God's love for your sins, And you see the cross for what everybody else sees the cross of, which was a shameful and despicable end for someone who deserved it. That is what the cross is for you. It's purely about shame. It's not about rescue. And so we need to be honest that this is a terrible picture. It it can't be toned down. We need to feel the weight of the warning. We need to sit with the uncomfortableness that it brings. And so fourthly, I just want to say this helps us understand because this is a pastoral warning, not a theological treatise or argument. The author is not trying to solve here a complex theological problem about design sovereignty and human responsibility. The, The proper response to this word in Hebrews is not, oh, Now I'm confused at a deeper level about the nature of the doctrine of election. Now, that may well be the case, by the way. I'm not saying that that's not a a response, but that's not what this text is trying to do. The response we should have is, do you hear the seriousness of the warning? Uh, Do you realise the danger of being spiritually lazy? Do you know that Jesus is your hope? Live it out. Find people to imitate. Take it seriously. Your very salvation is at stake. That's the response. The land that drinks in the rain often falls uh, uh, that falls in it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is being farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. That's the pastoral warning. Take your spiritual maturity seriously. Well, what about our family and friends? Those whom we love and we grieve that they've walked away from Jesus. It's not theoretical for me, and I know it's not theoretical for many of you. And the answer is, we don't know what their final standing before Jesus will be. Only God knows the true state of their heart. Only God is in a position to know the true state of their heart and their ultimate destiny. And so what we need to do with his followers is let God be God. I would love to be able to give you the answer. I'm not God. 6.10, God is not unjust. He's not unjust. And we know that people who have turned away from God seemingly forever turn back to Him. We've had the example of Peter just this evening. So can I encourage you, if you have family and friends in this situation, keep praying for them. God is not unjust. May our wandering friends and family know the mercy and power of God. God is God. What about our own response into that pastoral warning? Well, uh, from the rest of chapter 6, we're running out of time, so we haven't got a lot of time to cover it, but I just want to highlight the the certainty that you have as a follower of Christ. Uh, Because the author makes it really clear, he doesn't believe the Hebrews are actually falling away. He says, on the contrary, we're convinced, in your case, this is verse 9, of better things. Things that have to do with salvation. Salvation. He wants, to, he wants to lift their eyes. We've had to you know, confront those who are, who are content. Now, now he wants to provide comfort to those who are afflicted. Don't slack off, he says in verse 11. No, no, don't slack off. Show the same diligence to the very end, he says in verse 11. So your hope may be fully realised. We do not want you to be lazy. There's that word again. But to imitate those through faith, who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. See, diligence is the opposite to laziness. Once again, just picking up what he said earlier on. But notice too, just quickly, the call to imitate other people. Part of your diligence is, your due diligence you could say, is not just for your own well-being, but it's for the well-being of others. And particularly for our Christian brothers and sisters who've been Christians for a while, can I remind you that you are an example for younger Christians. I don't necessarily mean uh, your physical age, I mean your spiritual age. Some of might be, in their 90s, may well be a new Christian. Have you realised that your spiritual life is providing a model to others? That, that is a weighty thing. And one of the beauties of our church is we have a mix of those who've been Christians for a while and those who are Christians new and, and we want to see those kind of caring for each other, imitating, mentoring type relationships. The Christians who've been there, done that and got the T-shirt, so to speak can help those newly who are, who are wrestling, perhaps, how do I face work as a Christian for the first time? Well, we've got a couple of people here who may have been working for a while. How do I deal with, you know, my parents who, don't, who are not Christians and find it weird that I go to church? Guess what? There are people here you can talk to about that. I've been a Christian for a few weeks now, a few months now, I'm really wrestling with ha- how I engage in my workplace as a Christian. Guess what? There are people at church who've been there as well. And by the way, if you're one of those more senior people, guess what? You're the model. You don't get a choice, by the way. You can't opt in. (laughs) You are the model. And notice that the result of this diligence is that our hope is fully realized, that is fully complete, fully assured. He wants wants these people to know that, yes, I've spoken about serious things, but when you look to Christ, there is no doubt about your salvation. Have no doubts. How, how can he be so confident? He's been pretty blunt in previous verses. And it's because of the work of Christ. Very quickly in verses 6, 19. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. Why do you need an anchor? You need an anchor because things are not firm and secure, right? Boats on flat water with no wind don't need an anchor. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, this is in the temple, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf, he has become our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Christ is our high priest who has gone behind the temple, made a sacrifice of himself, which means your hope is secure. Look to him. In fact, what we've done very carefully, you, we've, we've arranged this just for you guys. If you turn around, we've installed some stained glass windows for you. Just for a visual. Have a look. You can turn around. It's not a. Yeah, have a look. There are three amazing women at the back there, uh, Faith, Charity and Hope or Faith, Love and Hope and I always thought the middle one was a woman after church with her children asking her to borrow the iPhone, that's not what it's meant to be love, but the one on the right, there's a woman with an anchor, Uh, she's not a sailor, just to be very clear, it is this passage. And so if you want to be reminded where your hope is as you come in, out, if you're a visually type person, there, some of us are visually, kind of visual learners, artists, those wonderful creatives, there's a picture to come in. Where is your hope based? What is the anchor for your soul? There it is. It reminds you that it's in Christ. As you come to church, perhaps anxious about the things in this world, as you leave church, hopefully less anxious about the things of this world, know that Christ is better and that you can put your hope in him. Let me pray that we do this as God's people. Our gracious Father, these are challenging words and also comforting words. May we as your followers seek to be mature Christians. Seek to provide an example for others to imitate. May we take seriously the warnings you give us in these verses. We pray for family and friends who have walked from you. In your mercy, draw them back. And Father, in all things, may we continue to place our hope in the risen Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.